Do you want to get right into it? Sure. You've been spending some time in Fairhaven. Can you tell us what it's like down there? Well, Fairhaven's a town in western Rutland County. Um, it borders the New York border. Um, it's near Castleton. A lot of people know Castleton University. It borders Castleton on its west side. So the town is about 3,000, a little under 3,000 people. Beautiful town green in the center of town. But uh, just off that is kind of their commercial district, kind of a, a strip along their main street where a lot of businesses are. And people tend to congregate in, in uh, a couple of the restaurants, like the Wooden Soldier is kind of the breakfast place people go to to hang out. And also there's a cafe in town called the Kinder Way Cafe. A lot of the conversation in town happens at those kinds of places. Who lives there? Like, what do the people who live there do? It's a town that kind of came from the slate industry. They build themselves on their letterhead of the town as the slate center of the nation. The school is their their name are the Slaters. So it's a real kind of working class town. A lot of people work in New York State, across the border. But they send their kids to school in Vermont. Yep, and it's not just Fairhaven with the high school, because it's a union high school. It includes the towns around Fairhaven, which include Castleton, as well as uh, Orwell and Benson and West Haven. And that's the environment that Mm -hmm. this incident got dropped into. Well, detectives say that an 18-year-old expressed that he wanted to cause mass casualties at Fairhaven High School. This is a picture of him right here. Jack Sawyer was arrested yesterday after investigators were looking into the school threats. Did you get a sense from the people down there of what it was like the day this news dropped about Mm -hmm. this arrest? Mm -hmm. I think there was shock that it happened there. I mean, you hear that a lot when, when things happen, but that was the reaction I heard from people is they couldn't believe this kind of thing happened there. And it also happened in the context of the shooting that took place down in Parkland, Florida. It was two days later that uh, Mr. Sawyer was arrested. Good afternoon, everyone. He was arrested at night on a Thursday night, and the governor's press conference was on Friday afternoon. Late yesterday, we learned about a young man who was planning a school shooting right here in Vermont. This is a stark reminder that we are not immune to tragic violence. Where he talked about reading the affidavit in the case and the chilling details in there and how he was jolted by reading the affidavit in the Sawyer case. You may already know what happened next. This case tipped off weeks of debate that led to historic changes to Vermont's gun laws. But this week, we're seeing new developments that could overturn a century of legal precedent in the state and change the way cases like Sawyer's are handled in the future. From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. It's Thursday, April 19th. Our criminal justice reporter, Alan Keyes, has been following Sawyer's case. The arrest happened shortly after they were contacted by the teen in New York, who was a a friend of Mr. Sawyer's, and she had exchanged Facebook Messenger messages with Sawyer in the days leading up to his arrest. And in those messages, he talked about the shooting in Florida, as well as his thoughts about carrying out a, a similar shooting at the school in Fairhaven, where he had been a student. And as part of the investigation into that, they uncovered from Mr. Sawyer a notebook or a journal and he titled it Journal of an Active Shooter. And in that journal, he had talked about carrying out a shooting at Fairhaven Union High School. Also, he had purchased a shotgun in a couple days before he was arrested. And he also, in an interview he did with police, he talked about his plans to buy a AR-15 gun, as well as his plans to buy a um, 9mm Glock. When Sawyer's arrested, what is he actually charged with? He's charged with four attempted crimes. He never actually went to the school and actually committed the actual shooting. So there were all four felony attempted charges. 
with the most serious being attempted aggravated murder, which if convicted is a mandatory life without parole sentence. Tell me about what happened after he got charged. He's given a public defender. What kind of a defense do they come out and try to mount? They were pretty aggressive from the beginning that the charges did not fit the activities that Mr. Sawyer was undertaking. They had said from basically the start of the case, I believe, that it was overcharged. They said that their client had never actually carried out a crime, never. It was only planning, and he had only talked about it, but it never actually got to the point where under Vermont law, it would qualify as an attempt. The reason they made this argument relates to over a century of legal precedent. We're going to have an outside expert explain. Robert Sand. Hi, Robert. It's Mike Doherty from VT Digger. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Robert Sand is a former Windsor County prosecutor. He's now the director of the Center for Justice Reform at the Vermont Law School. Our legislature has a law that makes it a crime to attempt to commit other crimes. The legislature doesn't define what it means by attempt, so it's been left to the judicial branch to come up with a definition of attempt. And what they've consistently said for decades is that there has to be criminal intent and intent to commit a crime and then an act in furtherance of that criminal intent. And so the debate, the most recent debate, has been about whether behavior leading up to a culminating crime is a sufficient act to satisfy that uh, component of the attempt crime. Mm-hmm. And what our, the court has said is it has to rise to the level of the commencement of the consummation of the final event. Could you give me an example of like what would be a clear cut and dry attempt at a crime? Sure. So a person driving to the location mm-hmm. where they're going to assault or rob or burglarize or steal, they're on their way to commit that act. Mm -hmm. I think that there would be no question about that. Or a person on the threshold of the home that they're going to break into, but the the police happen upon that. There's no issue there. The, The problem is when you go farther back in time and someone is arguably in the planning stages, is that the kind of act that constitutes the commencement of the consummation, the beginning of the end, versus what the court sometimes describes as mere preparation. Part of the challenge is there's no bright line. And one set of facts can lead one reasonable person to believe, oh, that is beginning the final act, and lead another reasonable person to say, no, that's simply preparatory and is not an attempt. When courts have tried to draw that line, they tend to look back to one state Supreme Court case. It's a case, I guess, that kind of guides Vermont attempt law that dates back to the early 1900s. It's called State versus Hurley. And Hurley was a prisoner in a Vermont facility, and he had arranged with somebody to get him a hacksaw, I guess as part of a plot to escape from the prison. And he was charged with attempted escape, with having the hacksaw in his possession, and eventually went to court and he was convicted of attempted escape. However, when it got to the Supreme Court, the conviction was overturned because they said that he had never actually used the hacksaw 
to like go through one of the cell bars. So he never actually attempted, he only had the tool. So having the tool wasn't enough to prove the attempt. And that case law has been kind of holding up and guiding the attempt statute in Vermont for, oh, these 112 <laughs> years. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of attempt cases that are brought every year, just not to this level. There might be attempted retail theft, attempted assault, attempted trespassing. And I guess you have to actually take an overt step that would lead to carrying out the crime. I asked Robert if this was how attempt laws in Vermont were typically applied, why might prosecutors have brought those specific charges against Sawyer? You're asking me to speculate about why another prosecutor made a decision. And so recognizing that it is speculation, I'll bite and offer two reasons. One is that it isn't clear cut. And so it's perfectly reasonable for a prosecutor to aggressively pursue accountability under an existing law where it's a colorable argument. And the charges were reasonable enough that a very good, competent, intelligent trial judge agreed with the prosecution. Mm -hmm. So argument one is it was and is a reasonable effort. Argument two, and this is one that I think the legislature will be addressing, is in the event it isn't an attempt, what else is it? And maybe there isn't any other existing criminal law that neatly applies to this behavior. Maybe there is an existing void or gap within the body of criminal law. And so this was an effort at accountability, recognizing it was imperfect and that the legislature hadn't passed another law that was a better fit. Alan, what happened next with the Sawyer case? The Supreme Court found that he could no longer be held without bail. He was originally held without bail following his arraignment on the charges back after his arrest. So the defense appealed that bail order saying that the charges did not warrant holding him without bail. And so if they appealed saying that the charges weren't warranted because he had never actually attempted the crime. And the Supreme Court pretty much ruled in their favor. And so in doing that, that sort of raises the possibility that he could be released mm -hmm. in the near future. Yep. So the Supreme Court sent the case back to the trial court level to the judge who had held him without bail. They had a hearing this week to take up the issue of bail again. This week, the judge still found that the charges should stand at least at this point, And he set bail at $100,000. And Mr. Sawyer hasn't been able to post that bail yet. Prosecutors also have brought two other charges, perhaps concerned that the other charges that weren't going to survive. The original charges might not yeah. stick. So they filed two additional charges. And both of those charges are misdemeanors. The first one is criminal threatening. And the other one is carrying a dangerous weapon with the avowed purpose of causing harm or serious injury or death to a person. So right now, as, as we speak, all the charges still stand. Yeah. So, so the there's a total of six charges. Yeah. So the felony charges stand, as well as the um, two misdemeanors. The judge has asked the prosecutor to file a motion to why he should continue to find probable cause on the felony charges. So a hearing has not been scheduled on, I guess, the battle of whether or not those charges are going to continue to stand. If Sawyer were released as part of these upcoming court proceedings, 
what happens then? Well, his father testified at the, the bail hearing this week that if he were released, he was planning to immediately take him to the Brattleboro Retreat to receive inpatient psychiatric care. He said he had been working with his son's attorneys to help make that possible. What has the reaction in Fairhaven been like to that news? I think they're surprised. The charges were so strong to come out of the gate, like when he was charged. They're, you know, attempted murder type charges that carry life without parole to think that somebody could be released back into the community that I guess has raised some concern among people. There's not only concern, I think there's, there's also frustration and there's also confusion about the whole situation. Like, how come the charges don't still stand? A lot of people don't understand the kind of legal precedent that follows. They believe it was an attempt. They're not reading the, the VSA case law and the legal briefs that are be, being filed in the case. Yeah. And these are people who send their kids to Fairhaven High School. Yeah, it's very personal for people in Fairhaven. I mean, they know, obviously, Mr. Sawyer supposedly had like a kill list in his journal of students and faculty. I mean, there are people in town who know who might have been on that list. And so there's obviously fear that if Mr. Sawyer does get released from some people in the community, that maybe he'll carry through on his threats. Some of those students have lobbied about some new laws that are under consideration now. Yeah, yeah. There was actually a meeting in Fairhaven over the weekend where lawmakers were there and uh, some parents as well as teachers, it was a, a big crowd there, had talked about making changes to the law to change the attempt law so that you don't have to go so far down the line that it becomes a dangerous situation. The um, prosecutor has said if we wait until he comes onto the schoolhouse grounds or a person comes onto the schoolhouse grounds with an arsenal of weapons, it's too late. How exactly would that work under the new proposals that they're talking about? They're struggling with it. Lawmakers are struggling with it right now. Um, it's difficult to determine when somebody's plan turns into an attempt. First of all, John Campbell for the executive director of state's attorneys and sheriffs. Look at, let's take a look at Parkland for a second. Uh, the fact that this guy had planned this, he, he had the, um, the weapons, he planned the, uh, he got the all the rounds, all the magazines, whatever, he's ready to, to rock and roll. If the police caught him on his way over to, let's driving over to the school, I do not think that that would survive with the, with the overt act, that requirement of our current statute. One theory that some people have put forward is to call it, a, they call it a substantial step theory, that as part of the attempt law, that it would include um, a person having taken substantial steps that corroborate what they were going to carry out. Under the model penal code, I believe that we, he could have been charged at that point because there were a significant a number of substantial steps that will corroborate that that, number one, that to show what his in, uh, intent was to go and to kill as many people as possible in those buildings, in those schools. And second, that he, uh, the substantial steps towards it was getting all the uh, equipment, planning uh, how he was going to do it, and, move, and actually going, getting in his car, driving towards the, the school. But it still seems rather vague in determining. I mean, eventually, I guess it would be up to the Supreme Court to interpret what those steps are and do they rise to the level of somebody actually attempting a crime? So there are two, two tracks, if you will. One approach is to fix the attempt law and to recognize that the legislature has a role to define its terms, that the legislature can accept the invitation by the Vermont Supreme Court in the Sawyer case to 
provide greater clarity to what it means by attempt. That's a relatively simple mandate on the surface, but it's complicated because we have decades of precedent and there's been a lot of talk about adopting an approach used by this thing called the model penal code, Mm -hmm. which is really a progressive code. However, once you do that, the question then arises, do we then engraft other model penal code provisions related to attempt onto our law? So from my perspective, that is a important but big undertaking that should not be done in a hurried fashion. The second approach is to say what behavior occurred that should be treated as a crime in and of itself, irrespective of whether it rises to the level of an attempt. So the example I testified this morning in House Judiciary, I said, imagine we know that a bad thing is going to happen on day 10. Was there behavior that occurred on days one through nine that in and of itself should be treated as a crime? And so the second phase of what the legislature is looking at is, are there existing laws that with modest adjustments could address this situation? So, for example, we already have a law that prohibits carrying a dangerous weapon. That law, as written, has a maximum a penalty of two years. Well, the legislature could quite easily create an enhancement provision to that existing law and say it shall be a felony punishable by 20, 30, 40, pick your number of years, Mm -hmm. if the person intends to injure more than one other individual. Like a mass shooting. Right. And so we already recognize in the law that Carrying a weapon with intent to harm another is a crime in and of itself. It just may not have an adequate maximum penalty to apply to a situation where someone intends to hurt multiple people. So that's a relatively easy fix to just create an enhancement. We have a weapons of mass destruction law. We could adjust that law to include a firearm where it is possessed with intent to harm or kill multiple people. We also have a destructive device law, and we could say that a firearm possessed with intent to harm multiple people meets the definition of a destructive device. The advantage of any of those three options is it would allow for earlier law enforcement intervention than certainly our current attempt law. And I think almost everyone recognizes the longer police have to wait, the more the risk of significant harm increases. Uh, for the record, Chloe White, ACLU Vermont. Um, we, have, we have serious concerns regarding this proposed language. Groups like the ACLU have come out and raised concerns about free speech concerns and, and the idea that expressing intent through writing something down in a journal or something like that should not be cause for legal action. Our Constitution doesn't allow someone to be convicted of attempted murder for something written in a private diary, a blog post, a violent song or in the course of other activity protected by the First Amendment. Do these provisions that you're talking about, do those things intersect? Yes. So first, I would say that many other states have laws that criminalize possession of a firearm with intent to use the weapon illegally. Mm -hmm. So they have wrestled with that. 
we could rewrite the law to say that a person who carries or possesses a firearm with the purpose to use it illegally, a higher standard arguably in the law than intent. And so the casual or offhand or flippant remark would not be sufficient to establish that someone had the conscious object, the objective to actually harm other people. So yes, there is that concern. That's also why prosecutors have the highest burden in the law, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that should help, not absolute guarantee, but help serve as a safeguard against a casual comment being treated as proof of an element of a crime. Alan, what are the prospects for these changes in attempt laws looking like in the state house right now? I think there will be some type of changes. I know that the House Judiciary is working on the actual changes to the attempt law, while the Senate Judiciary is working on changes to the state's domestic terrorism laws. And what role have people from Fairhaven played in that process of uh, discussing this legislation? There was a group that turned out for the Senate Judiciary hearing yesterday and made their, their thoughts known to the lawmakers on that committee. You may not classify the situation as an attempt, but many people, including myself, do not agree. Are you really prepared to wait for bullets to fly and people to lose their lives before you see that this is an issue that needs to be addressed? This was a threat and this was an attempt. They also went to the House Judiciary Committee. They went to, they talked to other lawmakers, and they're strongly advocating for changes in the law. Well, what needs to change is the fact that these kids are coming to me saying, are we safe in this building? And I have to say, I have no idea. And with Jack Sawyer and the situation that he's put us in, we have no idea. Looking ahead, can you give me a sense of how significant these changes in attempt law might be for the state? Well, I mean, the, the biggest change in the law that has a result of the Sawyer case has been the changes to actually the firearm laws. Since Governor Scott said he was jolted by reading the allegations, he actually changed his view on the need for um, gun restrictions in Vermont. We had a close call, but just like the ones we all experience in our own lives, like a near miss on the highway, we say to ourselves, I'll never do that again. This is one of those moments where, as a state, we have the opportunity to do things differently. But I know that he also has taken a pretty strong stance on the attempt laws as well. Well, I think, like you said, he was jolted by reading the affidavit, and I think the, the fear is what would happen if he gets out or if another person in this similar, with a similar set of allegations, how do we address this going forward? And I think he wants to have something in place beyond the Supreme Court throwing out the charges. He wants to have something that the Supreme Court would, would support. Do you think that question will be settled if they pass these revisions? I think whatever revisions they pass will eventually end up before the Supreme Court. And then that will be decided at that point, yeah. no matter what the legislature decides. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. You can find Alan's ongoing coverage of the Sawyer case and of all the legislation we've been talking about at vtdigger.org. Thanks to Robert Sand for joining us. Thanks also to WCAX for sharing some of the footage you heard up top. 
The Deeper Dig comes out every week. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.